cut it there. Cut, 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 cut! Ribbit! And cut. Cut! Cut, 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 cut! Terrific! Cut! And cut! Cut, let's try it again. Cut! And cut! 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 Check the game. Cut! 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 Welcome to Cut, just another movie podcast. I'm Annie. I'm Angie. And we're two siblings that love movies. Here we are. This is our season finale. It's actually been a year. We celebrated our one year anniversary of doing this podcast, which is awesome. Um, it was a few days ago while Angie was at a Not Scary Farm because, you know. Because I would be. Our first episode was on Titanic. It was actually a two-parter. If you haven't checked it out, again, we're streaming wherever you listen to podcasts on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, as well as we do a video episode of each podcast on YouTube. Uh, if you just search Cut Movie Pod, you should be able to find us, as well as on our social media, Instagram, Twitter, same thing, Cut Movie Pod, just search and that's where we usually tease what episode we're about to do. Again, any likes, subscriptions, we really appreciate it on YouTube because again, it helps you know us do this thing that we're trying to do called the podcast. A little teaser coming up for October because we are entering spooky season, which is Angie's favorite. We're in spooky season already. Yeah. Once I it hits September. That's true. We got a few uh, tickets to Beyond Fest. Now, we talked about Beyond Fest for um, Old and as well as Pig, where they do. It's a little festival that started off with doing kind of spooky movies, psychological thrillers, etc. Um, but they do it year round, but this is their prime time of where they do releases for the first time on certain movies. And so we're going to be doing exclusive reviews of certain movies that are not going to be released for a while. So, you, so we're going to be posting those as well as doing some live commentaries on movies that just came out and doing again, a deep dive on a scary movie because of course it's October. So we gotta, we gotta go there. So be on the lookout for those. And again, Make sure that you subscribe, like, and comment on anything that we do because all that helps the algorithm and helps us, you know, get some feedback and make these podcasts better for you guys because ultimately that's that's what we want to do. Having said that, let's go ahead and do our deep dive on this month's podcast. So, Angie, what movie are we doing? We are right in the middle of baseball. Well, I want to say in the middle of baseball season, but baseball season is coming to an end. But this is when real baseball happens. If you have a good team. If you have a good team like ours. Is the postseason. So the postseason is when all of the best teams kind of duke it out to see who's the world champion. And because of that, we've decided to go with a baseball movie this month. And it's going to be A League of Their Own, which is one of the best baseball movies. I would say for me, it's in the top 10 of greatest baseball movies. But talking about baseball movies in general, I feel like that's the best sports genre that exists where not to like talk down on, on football movies and basketball movies because there's some great ones like Hoosiers, Any Given Sunday, um, Remember the Titans. But I feel like baseball movies in general, there's just like so many great ones, like especially in the nineties when the league of their own came out. Cause the league of their own, a league of their own came out in 92. Um, I think about rookie of the year, major league, Sandlot, for love of the game, you know, just an outfield. Right. And so I feel like some of the best sports movies for sure. have been baseball movies. There are definitely more of them. I think. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. Or maybe it's just, no, I definitely think there's more of them. Cause yeah, like you were saying, it's rookie field of dreams, 
Kevin Costner, you know. As per usual, let's start with your first memory. Do you have a specific memory of watching a League of Their Own at all? I don't have a first memory of watching it. I think it was maybe I probably saw it on TV or dad showed it to me or something like that to where I was into baseball. I've always been into baseball, but, you know, being a girl, it was just kind of like that's a boy's sport. And so there wasn't really anything available to me where I saw, you know, girls playing the game. So I think maybe dad might have showed it to me just because he was just like, oh, well, like these are girls are playing the game and it's a good movie, even though dad hates Tom Hanks. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was the one that showed it to me. And I kind of just remember it always being on like the like Channel 5 or something, just always being on Sunday or whatever. And I've always liked it. And then growing up even more as I got more into baseball and as I got more into film and movies, I kind of learned to appreciate it in a different way and kind of what its impact has been since it came out. I don't have a specific specific memory of it. Like you're saying, like, I remember that it was always on TV, but I don't know if I saw it in the theater. But what's weird about that is that I, I do have a memory of a ticket stub that says a league of the, but I don't know if I'm imagining that or if it was like a thing. And because I'm thinking 1992, you were two years old. And I'm thinking, I don't know if mom would have taken us to go see it. Maybe when you, you were that young. but definitely maybe, not yeah, me. Maybe I would have gone, but I don't have like, like with the other podcasts that we've done where I'm like, yeah, I remember exactly where I was. Like we were at this theater or I was at home. I don't have a specific memory, but what I do remember is that it was always on TV all the time and just through the years, seeing clips here and there. And obviously, like you're saying, like we're both big baseball fans. And so automatically the attraction there was always there. And then when you add, you know, Tom Hanks and Gina Davis and the history behind it, um, where it takes place, all that sort of lended itself to me being interested in and I have a memory, I want to say, of watching it like in junior high during like a rainy day. Because at my school, if it was raining outside, you wouldn't go out for like recess or whatever the junior high equivalent of recess was. And they would just put movies on in the multipurpose room. So we would watch like Roger Rabbit, The Sandlot. And I feel like A League of Their Own was kind of in the mix there. Before we get into, you know, like the behind the scenes pre-production stuff, I want to talk a little bit about the actual history of the uh, women's league and kind of separating a little bit of fiction from reality, which is kind of, you know, they talk a lot in the movie about how the league was formed because the men that were playing baseball went off to fight in the war. And so there was no baseball and they were like, what are we going to do? We need baseball. That's not entirely true. Although some did fly over to fight in the war, like Joe DiMaggio enlisted, but he played baseball with the army, like he didn't really like see any action. And if he did, it wasn't much. The biggest reason why the women's league came to be was because they needed something to bring money into the MLB fields while the real base or not the real baseball teams were playing away. So they needed someone to play on the home field so that they could still make money. And that didn't really end up, end up happening. They didn't even play in major league. Fields. They ended up playing in like Kenosha, like Indiana, like small little tiny Racine fields. And Racine. So what ultimately ended up being like, oh, we need this to make money for the vacant fields. Just ended up being like, oh, we're just going to play in the smaller, smaller cities. During the war, when 
baseball was kind of on a downward slope because we didn't have players. The president of FDR wrote a letter to the commissioner of Major League Baseball, basically telling him that the country needed baseball more than ever now. So to not stop, you know, America's favorite pastime. And that I kind of that also kind of helped the women's league come to fruition. Besides, you know, making money, they were just kind of like, well, America needs to be watching baseball now. Because at the time, you know, thinking back to, you know, World War II, baseball was still the most popular sports in America. It was before the NFL took over, which now, you know, it's it's primarily the NFL that's the most popular. But at the time, you know, baseball was still um, rising in popularity and it was by far the, the most popular sport. When the Women's League kind of started happening they sent out a bunch of scouts all over the country and so they had women from america and canada that were trying out to be in this baseball league and so i think they had 280 to go to wrigley for final tryouts out of like hundreds and hundreds that tried out in the first place and i think out of those 280 only 60 actually made it into the league wow and so you know it was pretty much every they tested them on everything so like running bases hitting balls pitching throwing the works basically just to try and see who was the best of the best in the country and the players in the league some were as young as 15 yeah it's super young yeah that's really young but i mean you could do it <laughs> like you're young you could play baseball and the people that formed the it's the aagpbl all-american girls professional baseball league yeah and like it kind of changes throughout history but that's kind of like the moniker that it's known of, which is like a mouthful to say. And so the people that found it was Philip K. Wrigley of the Bubblegum and Branch Rickey, who Branch Rickey scouted Jackie Robinson, who was played by Harrison Ford in 42, which I thought was interesting because I had no idea. A lot of the girls that were in the league came from like a softball background. And so there was kind of this weird thing where... At first, it was a softball league, and then it became a baseball league, and then it became like a hybrid league. So like that's why in the movie, I remember thinking about this when we watched it last time, when they scout uh, Kit and Dottie, they're playing fast pitch softball. So like they do the whole like pitching around the world. And then when they're in the league, they're doing baseball pitching, so like right. overhand pitching. And I remember I commented to you because I did not remember that. I was yeah. like, wait, they're playing fast pitch? Yeah. Like, I thought they were playing baseball. And I was like, but it makes sense, the progression of, of that. And so like a few of the things that were kind of in this hybrid team or hybrid uh, game that I'm going to list off is that they used softballs at first and they threw underhand like with softball. Not sure if it was like completely fast pitch or just like underhand. Just lobbing it. Yeah, the pitcher's mound was 40 feet away compared to the 60 that's in baseball. Bases were also shorter. So like in baseball, they're 90 feet apart. Yeah. And then in the girls' league, they were 65. So the shorter distance to run. And then in softball, you can't steal bases. But in the girls' league, you could. In 1948, they was when they made the switch from being all underhand to, you know, just straight overhand baseball pitching. And the pitches were from 50 feet away. So they were a little bit farther than the original pitcher's mound was. In 1954, which was the final year, which is something else that I wanted to bring up, in the movie, they kind of make it seem like it was just the one year. And like, well, they, there's a commentary where um, Gary Marshall's, who's playing the version yeah. of, he says, all right, well, 
you can have one more year when when they go to the World Series. Yeah. So it, it does make it seem like it was like one or two years and that was it. And in reality, they started in 1943 and their last year was in 54. Okay. So it was 10 whole years. Yeah, it was basically. a decade. Yeah. And by the time they ended, I think they only had like three teams left. Oh, wow. Or like six. It was like something like it wasn't as many teams as they Very started small. with. Which was unfortunate. And so, yeah, in the final year in 54, the ball changed from a softball to a baseball. So they only used a real baseball for one year. Oh, what? Yeah, because otherwise it was like the big softball, which I think, no, actually in the movie, it is a baseball, right? Yeah, they are playing. The women would make anywhere from 45 to $85 a week, which now I wrote it down between 650 to $1,200 a week, Wow, which is a lot. Yeah. Like, although, I mean, you're putting your body through hell, essentially, especially because they didn't really have like they were wearing skirts, so they didn't really have like proper padding. Well, there's that scene when they're milking the cows and uh, what's his name? goes up to Dottie and Kit and says, you're going to be making $75 a week. Yeah. And it was like, oh, at the farm, we're only making like... Like 40 or something? Th yeah, 40 or $30 like a week. So it's that's a big price hike. How I was talking about them wearing skirts, they did have to wear those uniforms, which was essentially like a skater dress, <laughs> which is not what you want to be playing baseball in. And they also, something that was true from the movie was they had to attend charm school. Helena Rubinstein's charm school after day games. So, I had always wondered that. Me too. Yeah. yeah. So but that I mean, was, it kind of makes sense because you're throwing women into, at the time, a masculine, you know, sport. Yeah. And, and you wanted them to keep their allure. <laughs> yeah. You know, because there's that newsreel where uh, there's a, a woman that's saying like women playing men's baseball. Oh, yeah. And like, <laughs> she's like totally yeah. talking down about how, you know, these women are, are, going into the men's uh, field and, you know, almost being like, well, like we can't have them turn into men. Into boys. You know, into boys. Or it, she says something like, when our boys come home from the war, what kind of girls will they be coming exactly. home to? Yeah. Right. So they had to do the charm school and they were also given a makeup kit that they had to have with them at all times. And so the makeup kit, which is like, honestly, when you look at what's in there, it's, Pretty much just like a toiletries kit for traveling. Like it's nothing. It was cleansing cream, lipstick, blush, deodorant, astringent, face powder, hand lotion, and like hair remover. Like it's nothing. Yeah, it's, it's not, not too anything bad. too bad. And then they had, you know, beauty routines that they had to follow, which again, wasn't anything extreme. It was just like wash yourself after games, which is like a normal thing. It's not that big of a deal. And then they had to have like weird exercises that they did with like their face and like they had eye exercises because they couldn't have them looking tired and just like really ridiculous kind of rules. Speaking of rules, they had rules like they do in the movie where, you know, you couldn't be seen drinking and smoking in public. No men. You couldn't be like swearing. You also couldn't wear uh, slacks or shorts in public. You'd always wear like a skirt or a dress and you couldn't have a bob. Like if your hair was like up to here because it was too boyish. short. Yeah, you had to have like longer hair. It always had to be done. You always had to have lipstick on even during games. So Jesus. it was just like, some of them were pretty ridiculous. And because they had, you know, the short skirts, a lot of the injuries that you see in the movie actually happened. So like they were getting, like imagine sliding into dirt while wearing shorts. Like, right. That scene in the movie where she slides it to third base and she has that massive bruise. Yeah. On her rear end leg. Yeah. 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 It's just awful. Yeah. Like and I every, remember. I wince at that scene every I remember time. getting those in softball and that was, well, we used to wear shorts in softball too when I played softball. 
Yeah, for fast really? pitch, we wore shorts. Now that I'm thinking about it, what you didn't the wear hell? pants. No, we wore shorts. It was like we wore like a spandex, and they were like red, and then our baseball shorts were blue, and they were shorter than the spandex. Crazy. So we would get strawberries like that all the time. Because I don't remember that, and that's why they had us wear those spandex underneath to protect against. But it still happened. Like there was no point, and then we wore like shin guards, and that was it. Yeah, because I mean, it's only going to go so far down your leg. Yeah, we were talking about the racing bells or we were talking about Racine, they actually won the first World Series like they do in the movie in 1943, but it was against the Kenosha Comets, not Rockford Peaches. They all got a $228 bonus for the win, which is about three grand now. Nice. Which is good. The Rockford Peaches actually ended up with the worst record that first year. So I don't know why they picked the Rockford Peaches. Maybe all the other teams were worse. I, they could have just picked Kenosha, the Kenosha Comets. That yeah. sounds like a cool Did they name. have a losing record? Like where there was like 30 wins and like 50 no, losses No, they something? didn't see, say like their record. They just said it was like the worst the one. Worst. <laughs> yeah. The next year in 1944 was when the league expanded and they were able to play in major league ballparks finally. So the first year it didn't pan out. The second one it did. And they added two more teams in Minneapolis and Milwaukee. The teams that were playing in small towns though ended up with more publicity than the larger ones because in large cities, you know, you had MLB teams to watch. And so they got a lot of popularity in the smaller towns. They, they were more popular there. After 1944, Wrigley sold the league to Arthur Meyerhoff, who was an advertising executive. And then after the war, the All-American host cities organized junior leagues for girls 14 and under. So, you know, to get them into the girls the older girls league. Kind of like a little minor league. Yeah, like a minor league kind of thing. And then after that, they traveled to like Mississippi. They went to Cuba at one point. They went to Florida. And they wanted to make an international girls league. In 1947 was when they went to Havana. And they had a Miss America be part of the team. Really? Her name was Freda Acker. And she was part of the South Bend Blue Sox. And she only played exhibition games. She didn't play like... During the season, but she was kind of there to draw more attention and kind of either to get more girls to play or to get more guys to watch, basically. Provide more press. Provide um, more press, basically. Yeah, yeah. And although, like I said, she didn't play in the regular season, she did throw a no-hitter in the first game of girls fast pitch softball at a state tournament at Berry Field. And her sister played for the league from 1944 to 47. So I mean- That's impressive. Yeah, right? For like a Miss America- when they peaked in attendance, it was around 1948 and they only had 10 teams at the time and they, they attracted almost like a million fans. That's I think it was really like 900,000 fans. And then after that, of course, attendance declined because the war was over. Everyone came back and there was also a decentralization of the league. Mm. So they kind of didn't have control over publicity and like promotions and player wages and all that stuff. So it just kind of started to break down. And so, like I said, by like, 54, there was only like six or three teams left, which kind of sucks. In 1988, the Women in Baseball exhibit opened at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. And that leads us into the League of Their Own documentary, which you're going to tell us a little bit about. So the late, great Penny Marshall, who directed the film, she was the originator of the idea to make this into a feature because she had watched a documentary. I think it was produced in 1987 about a league of their own and it was titled that so it was the same name as as the film and she had watched it i think on pbs or something like that 
and had no idea about the all women's league and it existed and it being around world war two. And she's like, well, if I don't know that it existed, there's probably tons of other people that didn't know it existed. So I need to make this into a feature film. And so she was able to buy the rights from the creators of the documentary and make it into a feature film. And ideally that was the origin of, of how the, the film was made. Um, before we talk about casting though, I want to just give a background onto who Penny Marshall was. If you guys didn't know, Carol Penny Marshall was her full name. She was born in the Bronx in New York, October 15th, 1943. Uh, her father was a director of industrial films and a producer and her mother was a tap dance teacher. Her older brother, Gary Marshall, who you may or may not know, but Gary Marshall is responsible for creating Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, which I'll talk a little bit more about, Mork and Mindy, just to name a few. And he also directed uh, some of the great, you know, comedy films of like the 80s and 90s, Overboard, Pretty Women, uh, The Princess Diaries. And that sort of let, laid the sort of the bed of of the Marshall family. He was sort of the one that really broke into Hollywood. And then she kind of followed suit after him. Penny began her career as a tap dancer since her mother was a tap dancing teacher. And she was three years old when she started. And then she began teaching along her mother for her uh, in her uh, mother's dancing school. Penny ended up going to the University of New Mexico where she studied math and psychology. Then Penny ended up making what she calls her favorite mistake, getting pregnant at 19. If you guys want to look up this article, she wrote this article in Newsweek back in 2012 where she talks about her greatest mistake. Reading it and just hearing her voice in my head is like kind of like the perfect connection because if you've heard her talk, she's kind of self-deprecating and just trying to make a bad situation still be funny. And so as I was reading the article, that's all I could hear, just kind of her voice in my head. She met a football player that was on a scholarship by the name of Michael Henry, and she called him Mickey. After Mickey didn't make the team, he was super depressed, and Penny felt really bad for him. So she says that she just decided to have sex with him. A month later, she missed her period. Penny went to the doctor and found out that she was pregnant, and she had just turned 19. At the time... There was no legal abortion in the U.S., which is very prevalent to what's been happening uh, lately in this country. She wasn't, as she says, about to go into Juarez either, you know. <laughs> she talks about how girls back then were going on horseback riding uh, to try to end their pregnancies. Penny planned on having the baby on her own, but then Mickey suggested that they get married. They both raised Tracy for a few years, but then Penny and Mickey ended up getting a divorce. Mickey moved to Colorado and then Penny moved to LA for, with her brother, Gary. And at that time, Gary was already producing television shows um, and directing um, television shows as well. Her brother slowly started casting her in shows that he was like producing. And so she garnered some notoriety and directors wanted to hire her to be in just uh, other television shows. But her game-changing role was when she played the character of Laverne DeFazio on a little show called Happy Days. Penny's character, as well as Cindy Williams' character, Shirley Fenny, were such a hit with audiences that Gary Marshall, her brother, decided to do a spinoff. And that's where Laverne and Shirley was born. And so for me, that's my first memory of Penny Marshall was mom. Yeah. 
we were watching Wayne's World back in the day. Okay. And they do there's that scene where they do the spoof of like we're at a brewery in Milwaukee yeah, and they yeah. play the theme song and my mom and my mom was like, "Wait a minute, that's from <laughs> Laverne and Shirley. That was like a television show back in the 70s and 80s." And then I was like, "What?" And then she told me the history and then then I looked up videos and and that's my first Marie and Penny. Marshall. I didn't even know Laverne and Shirley came from Happy Days. Yeah. Like I just found that out right now. Laverne and Shirley was a huge hit from the late seventies and early eighties. Like I just mentioned after the success of that show at the push of her brother, Penny was really interested in directing Penny's first feature as a director was jumping Jack flash with Whoopi Goldberg. Penny described the difficulty in directing as cramming four years of college into one semester. So she really struggled with, with that first feature. Penny's next feature would garner her huge attention from critics and audiences. And that movie was big, starring Tom Hanks. It was a financial and critical success. Big would end up grossing over $100 million and became the first film to do so directed by a woman. Penny then went on to direct Awakenings in 1990, starring Robin Williams. Have you seen that? No. It's pretty good. I feel like it's good, but depressing. Also, might be a touch insensitive now. Okay. Because Robert De Niro plays like right. a mentally challenged patient. And it's been, I haven't, it's been like 10 years since I saw it. But when I saw it, I was really surprised because I was just like, Robin Williams, like, I don't know. Just like him in dramatic roles is always just like, unless it's like Dead Poet Society, it always just seems kind of goofy. And then I was like, Robert De Niro. But yeah, they, they make a good pair in that movie. I feel like that was his turn though. That was like the beginning of him going to more dramatic yeah. roles. Because then he did like The Fisher King mm-hmm. and... Like you said, dead poets. Yeah. And he wasn't just like considered like a goofball. Her directing Awakenings led up straight into A League of Their Own in 1992. She went on to direct television shows and start. I think she was, I remember she was like in a few episodes of, of Entourage playing herself. Of course. Sadly, Penny Marshall died in 2018 at the age of 75. Not to segue on a downer, but there's no real way to segue out of that. So we're going to drink one for Penny. And since Jimmy Dugan is a raging alcoholic in this movie, that too. Technically, he would drink anything. So I'm going with Modella and Angie's going with her usual claw. My usual. (sighs) Starting with the basic information of the film A League of Their Own was released in the States on July 1st, 1992, as a running time of two hours and eight minutes. I believe the film is streaming on Hulu. So if you haven't seen it, that's an easy way to go ahead and watch it. And we really recommend that you watch the film or if you haven't seen it in a while to rewatch it and then listen to the podcast because maybe there's a spoiler thing that you forgot about. And then there we mention be. it. Yeah, <laughs> It's on physical media, which is my preferred choice because you can have it forever. And this is the film that you do want to have forever. It's a great movie. It's aged extremely well. And again, it, it brings up a lot of great points and a lot of, still relevant too. Right. Like I said earlier, the film was directed by Penny Marshall. It stars Gina Davis playing Dottie Henson, who Gina Davis is coming off, you know, Thelma Louise, which is a big hit. And this is, to me, this is like pinnacle Gina Davis hitting her apex of her acting prowess. Also starring Tom Hanks, who plays Jimmy Dugan. Tom Hanks is coming off Joe versus the Volcano. The Bonfire of the Vanities. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this movie. I've never heard of that movie. There's a book 
that chronicles the disaster of this movie. This this film was directed by Brian De Palma, starring Tom oh. Hanks, uh, Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith, and it was supposed to be like this great dramedy, yeah, with a huge budget, but it it was a disaster. And there's a book, um, I don't remember the title off my head, but if you search for it, if you're a film geek like I am, really search for it because it really chronicles sort of the disaster of that movie. Um, Interesting. He's also going into Sleepless in Seattle and probably the prime of Tom Hanks. Cause then he goes Philadelphia Oof. Forrest Gump, Apollo 13. Wow. So he, he's wow. about to go on a roll right yeah. after leave their own film also stars Lori Petty who plays Kit Keller. My first memory of her is a uh, point break. Me too. Yeah. Even so, before, she, cause I had seen a league of their own before I saw point break. And then when I saw point break, I was like, Wait, that's Kit from League of Their Own. Right. So. To me, I feel like I definitely saw Point Break before League of Their Own. Oh, okay. and, I, and I do have a specific memory of Point Break because I remember that was also on TV. In Southern California, I remember it was on KTLA Channel 5. I just remember the bank robbing scene yeah. all the time. Yeah. And then also the big memory is Tank Girl. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's probably, yeah, yeah. if you were to ask people like her, her mm -hmm. big roles, it was that film. Then you have Madonna playing... May Mordebito, which is the most Italian name ever. Madonna's coming off Dick Tracy, which is a big movie. And then Shadows and Fog and Body of Evidence. And so this is also Madonna climbing, Madonna. <laughs> this is also Madonna climbing her acting career. And right. I feel like her apex is Evita, which is a few years after. Yeah, it was like 98. Um, yeah, it was like mid to late 90s. And then you have Rosie O'Donnell playing Doris Murphy. I don't have a very first memory of Rosie O'Donnell, but she did star in a show called Give Me a Break. And if you're of a certain age, uh, Give Me a Break started the great Nell Carter. And it was basically, she played as like a caretaker taking care of this. Like, she was black and she was taking care of this like white family mm. and took place in the 80s and all that. And I guess Rosie O'Donnell guest started in a few episodes, but I feel like Rosie O'Donnell, her main break was a league of their own mm -hmm. because then after that, she went into sleepless in Seattle and then she did another stakeout with, uh, Emilio. Also and, in Harriet the spy. Yeah. But that was much later. Yeah. David Strathairn. How do you say his last name? I have no idea. David Strathen. I don't. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> but he played Edward R. Murrow. His biggest role is like Edward R. Murrow in Good Night and Good Luck. Oh, okay. He plays Ira Lowenstein, who is the guy who super, supposedly created a league and organized it and like yeah. fell it through. Now, with your notes, was is that accurate? Or did he play, did they change his name? I think they changed his name. Yeah, there's no Lowen. Because there's a Lowenstein. shot at the end of the movie when when they're at Cooperstown. And then they were like, oh, Ira Lowenstein. And then there's a guy with glasses oh, that pulls and it's out supposed the to be him. stogie. Yeah, and it's yeah. supposed to be him. I'm guessing that's him. Whether or not it's what, Ira yeah, Lowenstein. Yeah. Uh, who knows? He's also Nomadland. That was oh, his like, okay. last. And he was in the great music video that Ryan Johnson directed with Sissy Spacek, uh, Oh Baby. Oh, by LCD, LCD Sound, System. Sound System. That's a great, if you haven't seen that, that music video, video, it's a great video. And then you have Tracy Reiner, who I just said is Penny Marshall's daughter. Betty she Spaghetti. She plays Betty Spaghetti. And then here's here's the one. Maybe you have it in your cast notes. Shirley Baker. 
is played by, do you know? Shirley Baker? I have no idea. Anne Cusack. A Sister Cusack? of John oh, and Joan Cusack. Gone. Yep. Gone. I was shocked. I had, I had no idea. Either I had no idea either. Yep. Wow. There is a third Cusack, ladies and gentlemen. What about Tay Leone? Tay Well, that's... <laughs> I was going to get there, but... <laughs> going into pre-production for this movie, I'm going to go over some of the casting stuff that Manny's already mentioned, but kind of a little bit more in depth. Going into like the main characters... There's speculation that several real AGPBL players were the inspiration for Dottie, like several of them. But one of the main ones, her name is Dorothy Kamenshek, considered by many to have been the best player in the league. Was she a catcher too? Bit of stats. She wasn't actually. A bit of stats for her is she had a career batting average of about 300, which now would be 400 in MLB. According to sports historians, that's what they said. She also started in the outfield and then moved over to first. So she was a first baseman. She struck out 81 times in 3,736 at-bats. Wow. In the 10 years she was in the league. That's incredible. And she took part in all seven of the All-Star games. So to compare, Joe Sewell, who's known as the hardest player in MLB history to strike out, his record, he had over 7,000 bats in over 14 years, and he struck out 114 times. So... About the same, probably Dottie yeah, had a little bit better. Yeah, the same average. Yeah. yeah. For Jimmy Dugan, the prim- primary inspiration for him was someone called Jimmy Fox, who only managed the ladies team in 1954, which was the last year that I mentioned. Similarity, similarities are just that he <laughs> was a hardcore drinker. <laughs> that was like his downfall is, you know, because of his drinking, he kind of went downhill. And in the movie, you can see him like in a rehab center, right? That's where like they grab him. No, it's the house of uh, of um, Gary Marshall's character. Oh, I. Yeah, it's like his like mansion. Are you sure? Because I feel like there are like people in wheelchairs. No, that's <laughs> one of them is his gardener, and then there's a couple his his parents or his like oh. his like parents in laws or whatever that are like playing like uh, croquet or whatever. Me thinking it was a hospital. Old. No, it's not. It's not <laughs> a hospital at all. But it's it's his house. Okay. Anyway, so. Originally, the movie was supposed to be a 20th Century Fox movie, but they pulled funding weeks before it was supposed to start filming. It was supposed to start filming in June 1990, and then Columbia picked it up a year later, and that's why it came out in 1992. For the audition process, they really wanted it to be authentic to you know the actresses that they cast. They really wanted them to be able to play ball. So a lot of actresses missed out on roles because they just couldn't play baseball or they didn't look like ball players when they were, you know, mimicking baseball stuff. And so it was just like how you would imagine or how you see the tryouts at Wrigley Field. That's what the auditions were like for the movie. So they had them throw, they had them slide, they had them pitch, they had them bat, field, you know, all that stuff. And over 2000 actresses tried out. I saw an interview with Penny Marshall and I think it was at the Baseball Hall of Fame for the 10th anniversary of the film. And she talks about how, like, yeah, if you're going to be in this movie, you have to play baseball. Like, yeah. I'm not going to take an actor that's not fitted to play baseball. Which, which I, I always kind of wondered watching the movie I was, cause, because I was like, it looks so realistic. Like, are these like doubles or is it actually them? And it turned out that it was actually them. But I, I love that Penny Marshall seems like a hard ass director. That she's not going to take any bullshit, even though she's known to be a comedic actor and seems like it would be like a great time. But any of the behind the scenes that I've 
scene of her shooting the film, she seems like laser focused of like, we got to make this movie and like, I'm not going to, you know, and that settle seems, for that seems just kind of weird because I feel like as an actor, I'd be like, oh, it's Penny Marshall. And I feel like off the set, she'd be Penny Marshall and you'd be like, oh, let's just joke around, blah, blah, blah. And then like on set, you'd be like, oh, crap. And that would be kind of like a weird switch to flip. And for the role, when we talk about the role of Dottie, there were so many actresses <laughs> that were in line to play Dottie before Gina Davis even. We had Brooke Shields, who was originally supposed to be Dottie, but she backed out because of the writer's strike. Because there was a writer's strike in 1988 and the movie was filming in 1990. So she backed out. And then next was Deborah Winger, who trained and was going to be in the movie but she backed out because Madonna was cast. Really? Which I, I did more research on that. And I was like, do they have like some sort of beef before this to where like they just didn't like each other? But from what I found, like her direct quote was that casting Madonna in the movie would make it an Elvis film. Oh, I Elvis, see. or even like you could go as far as to say Frank some Sinatra, Frank Sinatra films yeah. were just like, oh, that's Elvis. Well, that's it Frank Sinatra. Out that yeah. And so she kind of made it seem like it would it would ruin the authenticity of the movie if you were like, that's Madonna, you know, yeah. which it makes sense. But like to completely back out of it was weird. And she did back out and she still got paid, which I think was like one of the only times that that's happened was that she was still paid. I don't know if she was paid for her whole contract or just like paid for the time that she trained and all. Right. She trained for like three months. So she, she must have had a clause in her contract. It was something like that. Yeah. They hired her and then she backed out for, like you said, that reason. Also, Considered Demi Moore, Sean Young, Laura Dern, Jennifer Jason Lee, Allison Sheedy or Ali Sheedy. Wow. Right? Like, so I was going through these names and I was just like, okay, well, I don't know. I don't know. I could see most of them being able to play that role. But I mean, they have, like, I didn't see them play baseball. So I yeah, can't judge that. That was it for Dottie. Once it, be, once it came to Gina Davis, she actually had our, her audition in Penny Marshall's backyard which was them just like kind of playing ball back and forth. And the way the interview I read made it seem, it made it seem like they in real life did that scene in the movie where Rosie O'Donnell turns and throws the ball at Gina Davis and she catches she it. Bare hand. They made it seem like they did that in the audition and she caught it like that. And then Penny Marshall was like, okay, like it's yours. You, can you have, have a role. Yeah. Other uh, possible castings for different roles was for Kit. So Moira Kelly was originally supposed to play Kit. and she, But she hurt her ankle shooting the cutting edge. So she Dang, couldn't do it. Yeah. That's rough. And so when they cast Lori Petty, they had cast her and Deborah Winger together. And so they both had dark hair at the time. And so when they cast Gina Davis, Lori Petty was like, well, what are they going to do? We don't look like sisters anymore. And so that's when they give Lori Petty like the red wig that she wears in the movie, which doesn't look that bad. No. And then Marissa Tomei also sent in an audition tape where she was being coached by Joe Pesci, like <laughs> playing baseball. <laughs> but Penny Marshall said that she just wasn't a ball player. Like she just, I guess it just didn't look natural. She doesn't seem like no, she would be a ball player. No, no. The role of Jimmy Dugan was originally supposed to be a man in his like 50s. So a lot older. Tom Hanks kind of convinced Penny to make him younger. I think the compromise that they reached was that if Tom Hanks was going to play him, he had to like, ugly himself up and that's why he gained 30 pounds to be Jimmy Dugan which makes sense I mean but he doesn't look overly like big no at all. I mean he just looks puffy yeah yeah, yeah. he like looks a little, like a recovering a alcohol yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. 
for the role of May, which we were talking about Madonna, she wasn't the original one. Originally, it was supposed to be Lindsay Frost, who I looked up her IMDb page. She played Boone's mom in Lost. Oh, yeah. That was supposed yeah. to, she was supposed to play May. Wow. Originally. And so, you know, she backed out for whatever reason. And then Madonna was cast because she was trying to, you know, expand her entertainment palette. Yeah. yeah. For the other cast members, like for Rosie O'Donnell's, I didn't really see any like alternate casting, which leads me to believe that that they kind of just made the role for her. And like I mentioned, when we were talking about the movie, when she does like the bat flip trick, that was really her. Like she learned how to do that for real. Like we meant, or like you mentioned, her daughter, Tracy Reiner, was Betty Spaghetti. That was something that I found in my notes too. And Gary Marshall played Walter Harvey of Harvey Bars, which is Wrigley in real life. Right, right. Gary was cast at the last minute because Penny couldn't get who she originally wanted to play, Walter Harvey. Wow, she didn't want her brother as. No, when I tell you who it was supposed to be, Christopher Walken. What? Yeah. (laughs) It was supposed to be Christopher Walken. Whoa. Yeah. Maybe too expensive. That's crazy. Because what had he done? He was already like. Christopher Walken. Go back to the deer hunter. The 78. Yeah. Academy award winner. Yeah. So he was already pretty established. So maybe he thought. Scheduling And this is also before Walken did comedies. You know. Right. This was like at the cusp. I mean. Where he started doing SNL. And yeah. that's what, like, I think showed him, oh, I can do comedies. And then he went on this, like, comedy role, you know? So I think that this was, like, the window where he was still, like, I'm trying to be a serious actor. And maybe he was just, like, I don't, I'm don't, i not right for this. Some, like, fun behind-the-scenes info. Lori Petty broke her ankle or her foot pretty early on in filming. How? She was sliding into third base. And I think her oh. foot just kind of went like that. Yeah, you know yeah. how it does. Got caught And so for like a few months, she had to wear like a boot, like while they were filming. The actresses had to have bodyguards at some point because some dude found out that Madonna was in the movie and broke out of jail and said he was going to like do something to her. What? So that's what Lori, I saw, I've read an interview with Lori Petty and she was saying that like they all had bodyguards around them because this guy was Crazy. just going like, to I'm kill Madonna or something. <laughs> so like you were mentioning earlier, that scene in the movie with the strawberry leg that you hate was real that actually happened really? to the actress because they were really sliding in those skirts and that shit happens. And speaking of sliding, all of the actresses did their own sliding, their own throwing, their own stunts. The only stunt that didn't happen the way we see it is the split that oh, Gina yeah, Davis yeah, does. Yeah. She did the split, but the sliding into it was yeah. a stunt double because she couldn't like slide into it, but she was able to do the split. There is another scene um, that I was going to bring up where I think it's like uh, Dottie is throwing out a runner at second that's stealing and it's a shot from the back and she like guns oh, it to like second base. It? That does not look like Gina Davis. That throw looks pro. I don't I mean, know. It could I think have if been you her. throw for three months straight, you it, might be It looks to. pretty hardcore. Gina Davis Com- also joined later on in the movie. So all the girls had been training for three months when Gina Davis came on. But, you know, she seems like an overachiever. So I feel like she'd be the type to be like, oh, sorry, I'm late. And then be like better than yeah. everybody But else. just physic- compared to the other shots of her throwing a baseball, like this one seems, and it, since it's from behind, you can't really tell. Could be, yeah. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like it was a, some, double. a double. yeah. 
And now let's get to the actual film. Now, usually what we would do at this point is we would break down the films that we're doing deep dive scene by scene. But I feel for time purposes that we're going to try to make it shorter and a little bit more interesting and talk about maybe some of our favorite scenes or things that stood out to us rather than breaking down every single scene. The thing that stood out to me first off is it's the very first scene where we're at older Dottie's home and older Dottie was playing by Lynn Cartwright. And so Lynn Cartwright, if you don't know, at her peak, she was a a B actress. So she was really popular with like B movies, not quite like Ed Wood status, a little bit better than that. But her big claim to fame was a cold horror film called The Wasp Woman, where she played a switchboard operator. And she had a very heavy Brooklyn accent. And I actually watched a few scenes from the film and like listening to her speak, I was like, this is not the same actress. <laughs> but even though it, it was really her. And the reason I say that is because when we rewatched it, you can clearly tell that the ADR, the replacement dialogue, is Gina Davis speaking for her. So it's not actually her her voice. I totally fooled me until the last time we watched it together. Because this entire time I was like, oh, that's just Gina Davis and old lady makeup. And like, I didn't even notice that the voice had been ADR'd. Like, I didn't notice until you mentioned it. And you're like, oh, did she ADR? And then from there you were like, wait, that's not even Gina Davis. And yeah. I was just like, oh crap, you're right. Yeah, And that's the other thing you bring up that point of a lot of people thought that the older Dottie was played by Gina Davis just with tons of makeup to make it look old. But no, that's Lynn Cartwright. And, and they casted it so well. Um, that that's her, you know, and her oldness and, <laughs> um, it really fooled a lot of people. When I think of my first memory of a league of their own for the longest time, I didn't even remember that whole entire first scene of her being old. I just remembered when Kit and Dottie are playing and John Lovitz is there and he's like, Oh, I want you, I want you Dottie to play. So that's like one of the first scenes that I remember. And then it kind of just leads into them recruiting Marla Marla yeah and that scene I really like too because you you get so much character development with Marla and her dad in like you know the five minutes that you meet them together and that's I really like that scene and like just the fact that you get this like reaction from John Lovitz when he sees her face or he's just like uh okay bye and then her dad's like, you know, that's my fault. I raised her like she was a boy. Right. So like, don't blame her because, you know, she's not as pretty as these other girls. And I really like that scene, especially like, because you get an insight into their relationship where Marla takes care of her dad because she's like, who's going to take care of you? And then she has like the busted glove and her dad's like, oh, I wish I could get you like a nice glove. One of my favorite lines is, and I'll go back a little bit, but. Dave Hooch, Marlo's dad, who's played by the late great Eddie Jones, um, who he was in Seabiscuit, Sneakers, Terminal. Um, what I remember him from is playing Malcolm in The Rocketeer. Yeah. Which we watched. We just watched after that, too. Right after that. <laughs> yeah. But one of my favorite lines from the scene that you're talking about is when they're just like, oh, I wish I had a better glove. But when she's like hesitant about going, she's like, who's going to take care of you? He says the great line. I was like, you got to go where things happen. That's such a great line. Following that, you have the whole sequence of them at Wrigley Field, yeah. like them walking Which through the tunnel. Which is the real Wrigley Field. The real Wrigley Field. And just meeting all the different characters 
was really cool. I really like I like a good montage and there are two of them in this movie. And that's really good because then you meet May, you meet Doris, and then you kind of see how Dottie and Kit interact with the rest of the girls. And then you kind of just get a sense of what the movie is going to be. And like you see that, you know, all of these girls can really play ball. And then that goes into that other really great scene that you were talking about with the forgotten Cusack, which I really like that scene. Especially now in 2021. And I'm sure there's still people out there that are literate that can't read. But especially in the at that area, it really nails home that there were tons of people that didn't know how to read. Especially because some of these girls were from really small areas right, where right. all they knew was like farming, like exactly. Dottie and Kit. And the last priority to them was, was reading. reading a book or yeah. reading anything. And it's not like today where, you know, you're on your phone and you're reading articles and mm-hmm. it was so available now. It's so available now. Or back then it was sort of like, you know, going to the library wasn't accessible to, to a lot of people. Um, let's talk about Racine's manager, Charlie, mm-hmm. played I was just by gonna talk about him. Don Davis. <laughs> yep. We know him from Twin Peaks. And from the X-Files. The greatest show ever made. And from the X-Files. Um, and I feel like, <laughs> but after Twin Peaks, he was like typecasted as like as a the general <laughs> or as like, like the wise the dad general dad. Or like, which is exactly who he plays in the X-Files is Scully's yeah. dad. He's the, the same other, character. And then the other thing too, he was like in Stargate SG-1. Yeah. So he plays like this leader, you know, in, in most fil- films and TV shows after, uh, Twin Peaks. Um, but yeah, that scene with um, Shirley Baker, it's kind of heartbreaking. We did recommend that you watch the movie, but if you haven't, basically they have put up all the lists of all the girls that have made it into the league and they've all kind of found their teams. They're sitting with their teams and there's one girl, Shirley Baker, who's kind of looking up and down the list and is kind of like, she's kind of starting to cry because it seems like she didn't make it. And their coach is like, well, did you make it or not? (laughs) And then one of the other teammates, one of the other girls comes up and is like, do you know how to read? And she says, no. And so she's like, okay, well, what's your name? Tells her it's Shirley Baker. And she's like, okay, well, let's look. And she's like super nice about it, which is really touching. And they find her name and she's in Racine. Yeah, she's Racine. (laughs) I couldn't remember what team she based on. But yeah, she based on one of the teams. He's the coach says, Go with your team. And, you know, it's just like a really heartwarming moment early on in the movie. We then switch to the introduction of Jimmy Dugan and Walter Harvey. And like you were saying that you thought he was like in a rehab center. It's his <laughs> like mansion. Basically, You watch the movie. It looks like a rehabilitation yeah. center. Yeah. What I thought interesting about that is they're throwing off stats, which is a big baseball thing. So Jimmy Dugan hit 487 home runs, two in the World Series and was a six time National League home run champ. Which to me is fucking incredible. I mean, that's borderline Hall of Famer. Right. When we were talking about Tom Hanks and how he had had all these like, where he had not terrible movies, but kind of borderline okay movies leading up to, to, um, to League of Their Own. I feel like this is the beginning where you sort of see his dramatic side combined with the comedic side. Because up to this point, he's kind of a goofball. That's what you think of him as. And that scene where he's really like trying to fight for the idea that he's not an alcoholic and he's trying to be like, I'm a better man than I really am. Yeah. 
Um, I think, and he has that dude, he has the greatest limp. Like to yeah. me, like if I just saw him, like it's like, yeah, your legs fucked up yeah. in some way, yeah. you know? Um, and so I feel like this, this role for Tom Hanks was a stretch and I feel like he really, you know, aimed for that and, and really achieved that push. Of course, the scene that everyone remembers him for is the peeing scene. I timed how long he actually peed for because mm-hmm. there's that whole scene where he mm-hmm. like goes in the locker room and he's yeah. fucking drunk yeah. or hungover. Hungover. And then May is like timing him. He's yeah. like, shut up, Doris. And yeah. like, <laughs> he does start and stop a few times, yeah. but I it's roughly 47 seconds. Okay. So is that a long time? Take a piss. Yeah. Okay. And do you know how I filmed that? No. Penny Marshall was just holding a water bottle and was just like, Oh, really? Yeah. And just like stopping, yeah. starting and stopping. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And speaking of Jimmy Dugan, his character arc is really nice to see in the movie because when he's tasked with managing a baseball team full of girls, he even says, I don't have ball players, I have girls, you know, when he gets all mad. Like he doesn't take it seriously. He's like scratching his balls in the dugout. Like, Dottie has to manage it for the first few games. And then there comes a turning point where he's like, oh shit, these girls can really play baseball. And he tries to manage, but then he sees that Dottie's doing it. And they have that really great scene where they're like competing signs, signs, you know? And then ultimately Jimmy's like, okay, your sign was better. And he kind of just goes with that. And then, you know, ultimately he finds out that, you know, these girls really love to play, especially Dottie. Like there are a few really good scenes with them where, he realizes that Dottie really loves the game, even though she doesn't want to because she has other priorities. And I really like the growth that his character does throughout the movie. His scenes, though, being hungover are like so. I mentioned damn it good. to you because I was like, how, it, like, he can't not, he has to be hungover. Because you can't fake like the bloating and just like. It's makeup and acting and just like. And then it's him, I'm sure, like deeping, searching deep down in himself (laughs) and being like, all the times I've been hungover. And just like when he's at the water fountain, just splashing the water. He's just like, he just looks puffy. Like at some point throughout the first few games, the owner comes up to the girls and kind of says, hey, you guys are great players. You're playing the game, but no one's coming to these games. Like, can you like give them a little pizzazz or like something because they have photographers from play better. basically (laughs) They have not even play better. Just like do something cool, you know, because they're playing well, you know, and they have photographers from like the local newspaper or whatever. And he tells them, Hey, these photographers are here. Can you just like give them a show just so there's something for them to put on their newspaper so we can get butts in the seats basically. And then we kick into this montage that starts with, um, Dottie, Gina Davis's character, catching a foul ball and like doing the splits, a split, and just like catching it, and that lands like the front page of whatever newspaper. It was time. It looks like time, time right? Magazine, yeah. And so from there, we kind of kick into this montage where, you know, we get to see kind of all of the stunts that they would pull. Like one of them is like catch a foul ball, get a kiss. Another one is trading oven mitts for baseball mitts. Yeah, and then they pitch to. Hitler. What are the other two? Rosie Donald's character catches the ball with her hat. Oh, yeah. Which would that count as a catch in Major League Baseball? Like if it was on perp? I don't know. I would have loved to see that. I don't think I've ever seen that in a Major League Baseball game. No, I don't know if it would count. 
And then you get Madonna Mae West, who's like, what if at one point, like, my suit becomes undone and my bosoms fall out? And they're just like, no. (laughs) And so it's just this really fun montage of just kind of like them doing all of these really cool stunts about, you know, while playing the game. Like, Rosie O'Donnell throws two balls at, like, two girls and, like, they catch it like this. And like you said, um, she catches it behind her back and, you know, catches it with her hat. And just all of these stunts that they... which really happened like they really had to do these things to get people to show up to the games since we're talking about montages i think this is a good time to talk about the soundtrack because i feel like during the montages that's where the music really kind of pops because it becomes very um big band jazzy Especially during this montage yeah. yeah the soundtrack was scored by han zimmer which at the time in the early nine, well now it's surprising because when you think of Hans Zimmer, you think about Dark Knight, Superman, um, these big blockbuster movies, very synthy, very kind of like moody. Yeah. And when you think about Leave Their Own, it's a very symphonic score. Um, it's very of the time, you know, yeah. uh, mid uh, 20th century. And I was, I always get shocked by that. I always get surprised by the fact that Hans Zimmer did the score. Leading up to uh, doing A League of Their Own, he had done Driving Miss Daisy, which is another like, what? Uh, Days of Thunder, Thelma Louise, Backdraft. And if you you go back and listen to like Driving Miss Daisy, um, the background is very synthy, but the melody is a wind instrument. And when you get to Backdraft, that's when that score sounds like modern day Hans Zimmer, where you're like, okay, that's that's Hans Zimmer for sure. A lot of people thought that the soundtrack to A League of Their Own sounded like a ripoff of Randy Newman's The Natural. And I could kind of see that. Oh, I could see that too. Yeah. Especially with the montages. Yeah. It's very similar to, you know, uh, again, very kind of jazzy, big band mm-hmm. type, of, type of music. Of all the Zimmer scores, A League of Their Own is the most organic. And it was actually his second score that featured in in all orchestra. There's mm-hmm. no synthesizers. There's there's none of that going on. Another scene that I really enjoy, speaking of big band, is when they go to the bar. What do you say? It was called Sud the Sud Bucket. Bucket. Like I mentioned earlier, some of the rules that the ladies had to abide by was no drinking, no smoking, no men. No dudes. And what they end up doing is they end up poisoning their like manager not manager, manager but like yeah. they're like nanny essentially yeah. and so she just ends up like puking her guts out at because they kind of live in like a sorority house is what it looks like and so <laughs> they're like well we got her sick we're gonna go out for the night and they go out to the suds bucket and there's a really cool like dance sequence with madonna and rosie o'donnell and there's more big band music and we see marla get trashed and like start dating this guy and then gina davis shows up and is like Hey, we gotta go. Like we gotta check. Sticking the mud. Yeah. Like, <laughs> she's the mom. Which I mean, whatever. You do see them like break the rules, and you kind of see just let loose them have a social life, which is what I'm sure a lot of them want. Which is I'm sure they did that. <laughs> there is no crying in baseball. Yeah, which is probably the line you know heard around the world. It was actually on a- AFI's uh, hundred years, a hundred um, quotes. Right. I think it was number fifty four. As uh, the greatest, you know, American film quotes. To me, the better line 
is I think it's right after that where the ump oh, goes. Oh, is it what you're thinking of? Yes. And so I love that line. Jimmy Dugan rips his ball player because she she doesn't hit, and I'm gonna say this the cutoff man, but it should be the cutoff woman. The cutoff player. Cutoff player. She starts crying, and then that's when he <laughs> says, There's no crying in baseball. She's in the dugout, and the ump is like, What's the hold of? Like, we gotta play a ball game. He's like, Oh, can you it's believe like she's like, crying, like, sir? She's crying, <laughs> sir. Like, can you believe this? And then as like the ump is like walking away, he's like, Did I ever tell you you look at penis with a little hat on? And then he <laughs> throws him out. Of the game and that then they have this back and so, forth and everyone, arguing the whole back team and forth. starts clapping like yeah. his own team but that face to face with so Jimmy Dugan and the ump is like real like that it's that so funny. could totally happen yeah. in, a, in a baseball game I think one of my favorite scenes between Jimmy and Dottie is they're on the bus and they're going to a new site for a game and this is probably the most dramatic well no actually there's another scene towards the end of the movie um where it's Jimmy and Dottie and they're talking about real life, not just about baseball. And there's a back and forth where Jimmy's sort of getting to know Dottie for the first time and asking her about like her husband and how her husband's off at war. And then she says like, why aren't you at war? And he's like, oh, I have a, a bum, bum leg. leg. And then there's a moment where Tom Hanks, and this is another one of my favorite lines, is like, he says, how did I get so useless so fast? You know? She kind of feels bad for him and tries to comfort him. And again, he's a raging alcoholic. And so he's trying to find his, his booze flask. or whatever, his flask. And then he's like, no, no, no. And Dottie's like, no, 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 have this. <laughs> and it's a bottle of Coca-Cola. Probably warm. His reaction when it. he it's takes so a drink funny. is like, ah, it's so good. So funny. There's also, I think this is the scene where I think Dottie's talking about her responsibilities back home and her responsibilities as a wife and how baseball isn't really like in the cards. And Jimmy Dugan's like, but you love it though. And she's just like, no. You play like you love yeah, it. Yeah, you play like you love it, which is one of my favorite lines. And she's just kind of like, no. And he's just like, yeah. And then th there was supposed to be, I don't know if you saw the deleted scenes, there was one of them kissing. What? But people were like, why? Yeah. <laughs> and so they just like took it out, which when Good. I saw that too, I was Good just call. like, why? Good call. Like, cause they have like in the scene, you can kind of see like something, but it all seems very platonic to where if they had actually gone through with it, I would have been like, well, this is stupid. It would have ruined it. Yeah, totally. Pretty much since the beginning of the movie, we can see tensions mounting between Kit and Dottie because Kit's always in Dottie's shadow. And she mentions in the beginning where they're like, this is our daughter, Dottie. And this is our other daughter, Kit. And then she's like, why can't you be all pretty like your sister, Dottie? And she's like, they never said that. And so you kind of get the sense of this like sibling rivalry where like Kit's like the younger one. Dottie's like the tall, statuesque, like pretty one who has like a husband and is good at baseball. And so she's always kind of living in this shadow. And even when they're playing, you can kind of sense the tension too because... Dottie's always like, don't hit the high ones. And Kit's like, I like the high ones. And it's just kind of like this back and forth. So Dottie kind of realizes this, kind of comes to the conclusion that it's better if they're on separate teams as opposed to them being on the same team. Who does Dottie talk? Did she talk to Jimmy? No, she talks to the commissioner. Ira. Yeah. yeah. She talks to Ira and is like, look, just like trade me because it's going to be better if we're on different teams than if we're on the same team. Dottie at that point is like, I'm, 
going home. Yeah, she wants to go and home. She's the most popular player, not just on racing, but yeah. in the entire league. So it's like if like Joe DiMaggio or Ted Williams just like I was like, I'm out. I'm yeah. not playing right. you know baseball anymore. Um, but to me, this is the movie. To me, the movie is a sibling rivalry. Totally. That's the yeah. basis. Because if we go back to the beginning of the movie where we're seeing the older Dottie uh, with her grandchildren, there's the younger, the younger grandchild yeah. and then the older one, and they're playing basketball. And then she goes to the older one and says like, hey, uh, you know, um, let your brother He's get a few you. shots. He's smaller yeah. than you, whatever. And then he tells the young one like, kill, kill him, him yeah. you know. And so that's the whole premise, the setup to the yeah. entire movie. And that's the drama. That's the turmoil between Dottie and, and Kit. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, rather than trading away the star to another team, uh, Kit gets traded to another team. Which I think as Dottie, like she should have known that that was going to happen. I'm sure she didn't want it to, but... Well, even Kit says like, this was your plan all yeah, along, Yeah, like right? you, wanted to, you wanted to get rid of me, which... But yeah, she should have known for sure. Once they sang the victory song, they're like in the locker getting ready for whatever game they're about to play. And there's a knock at the door and it's a military postman to deliver a telegram. And then that's kind of when you realize, like if you are privy to like any kind of information about the goings on during wars and stuff is that women would receive these telegrams about their boyfriends and husbands dying in action while fighting basically and it's kind of like the the postman kind of comes in and he's like real shitty about like what he's doing like there's like no sympathy because he's like ah oh, there's like no address here god this is gonna have to go back to the post office like but and then jimmy kind of gets into this real serious tone and is like just give me the card like because he knows what's about to He'll happen figure it out. he's like i'll figure it out just leave and like he's like shoves him out the door and this is when you realize that like, oh, one of their husbands is dead and they're getting like the letter. And so there's like a hush throughout the whole locker room and everyone just kind of like sits down. They start praying. And I like the camera work in this because it like pans from like girl to girl to girl to girl to girl. And it's like really slow. And then at the end, it gets to Dottie. And you like think it's going to be her and like she thinks it's going to be her. And then it ends up being Betty Spaghetti who's like right next to her. And so it's just like this moment where you're just like, oh, my God, you're like relieved. But like, it's still like really heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah. I saw something where um, Penny Marshall's daughter, who plays Betty Spaghetti, was like, yeah, once like they saw that I could really cry like that, like they they gave me the role for it. And it's really good. Penny Marshall's daughter is in Apollo 13. You're and right. she plays um, Bill Paxson's wife. And it's the launch sequence and they're looking up as the, the rocket goes up into space. Yeah. And she's, cry she's crying. She's crying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was funny that you mentioned yeah. that. Because like, yeah, I think she's definitely a good she's cryer. A cry face. As that turmoil is happening with Kit and um, Dottie, they're back at the, the house and then enter, as you alluded to earlier, the Bill's Pullman. Bill Pullman. Her husband. Bob Henson, throughout the movie, you sort of do forget that they're in the middle of a war. Yeah. You know, it's set up in the beginning that th this is the reason why uh, we're having an all-women's league. But then you get so caught up in, like, their success mm -hmm. and them doing well in the league 
that you're like, fuck like, the oh, man. Shit, like, there's a war. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're off, you know, overseas. Yeah. Like we totally forget about that. And then when Bob Pullman, Bob Pullman, Bill Pullman enters, <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh shit. Yeah. America's in the middle of a war and all the men are out there and they're, they're slowly starting to come back. Yeah. And it's a heartwarming scene because I feel like Gina Davis's character has this wall up where she doesn't really show any emotion. You know, when um, Tom Hanks character tells her, like, you play like you love it. Mm-hmm. Even then she's very resistant. Yeah. She's not willing to acknowledge, like, I love to play baseball. Yeah. I love this game. And when she sees her husband, that's when that wall sort of breaks down mm-hmm. and she just kind of releases all that emotion. We get to the second montage, and this is the World Series montage where Racine makes it against the Rockford Peaches. Rockford Peaches. This is where Dottie ends up leaving with her husband back to the farm to make babies because that's pretty much all she wants what to you do. Did. <laughs> yeah, what you did. And there's a great scene between Jimmy and Dottie where they're saying their goodbyes, and <laughs> there's a funny where he, there's a funny scene where Jimmy's signing a kid's baseball, and it says "Avoid the clap, Jimmy Dugan." Oh yeah, it's like. <laughs> Great advice. <laughs> yeah. Another great line that Jimmy says where he says to Dottie, the heart is what makes it great. And he's talking about baseball. And that's one of the reasons why I love the game because it is very difficult. Although a lot of people think that it's very easy. A lot of people think that it's boring and slow. Um, but to me, that's what makes it great. So Dottie leaves and you know, Racine is going to go to the World Series without their best player, the best player in the league. And it leads up to that montage that I was talking about. And it's a back and forth Mm -hmm. and it's a best of seven series. So meaning whoever gets to four wins first is going to be the winner of the World Series. Yeah. And ultimately it gets to game seven, which is as sports aficionados say, game seven are the best two words in all sports. Do or die. The great reveal is pitchers warming up for game seven and the catchers catching the ball. And I forget what Jimmy Dugan says to the catcher. Oh, I don't remember. And you're just seeing the catcher. You don't see her face or, or anything like that. Jimmy says something and then Dot and then Dottie comes up. Yeah, and she takes like, off her home and she's like, okay, it's already. Like, okay, okay, already. Yeah. You don't have to yell at me. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. he's like, oh shit. Well, Maybe I don't want you to play. And he's like, like, well, she's already ready. And the other catcher is just like looking all crappy in the dugout. (laughs) Her reaction in her face is she's like adjusting. She's all beat up. Like, like, (laughs) yeah, I'm not about this right now. And so he's like, yeah, you can play. Dottie, you can play. That's when Jamie realizes that they're going to win the World Series. He's like, we're "We're going to win. Yeah. Being the baseball nerd that I am, I had to break down game seven (laughs) to the actual film versus reality. Maze up to bat and then she gets a single and beats out the throw from short. Then Doris hits a single to right field. So you have runners on first and second. Mm-hmm. And this is the climax really of game seven in, in the whole movie. Evelyn hits a sack bunt to move May and Doris to second and third. Right. Then Dottie singles and brings in May and Doris home. And this ties the game and kid is pitching the whole time against her sister kit gets the last at bat which this is my man managerial issue <laughs> if you're a pitcher you're in the bottom top of the ninth why gives up the lead yeah you don't bring in your relief pitcher but it's a movie I know. moment i know because i thought that too kit ends up hitting a shot to right center 
Evelyn is playing too shallow, which yeah. again, Evelyn, what are you doing? Evelyn, please. She has to go out of the way to, wa- to the wall to get the ball. And then finally hits the cutoff woman. The ball gets to Doris right as kid is passing third. Yeah. And, and she decides again, to go home. We're talking about a field <laughs> that's 60 feet base to base. So yeah. it's a third of the size of mm-hmm. a major league baseball field. She would have gone thrown out totally. easily. Totally. At home. Yeah, I think that too. Easily at home. Yeah. As kids rounding third, Doris throws the ball to home, which would be an easy out. And then Kit runs into her sister, blows her over, which by today's Major League Baseball rules would have been an automatic out. So dirty. You can't take out yeah. the catcher now. The infamous scene where the close-up on Dottie's <laughs> hand as her arm hits the ground yeah. and then the ball rolls out, meaning that she didn't hang on. And then uh, Kit's safe. Racing wins. Bedlam ensues. And basically... You know, racing loses the World Series. I think, and this isn't like a lot of people are like, oh, was it on purpose? This is not an inception ending. This is clearly the older sister giving it to her younger sister. Although, if you ask Lori Petty, she disagrees. What does she say? She says that Kit ran into her, into her so hard that she knocked, that the ball she out knocked it out. And they've actually talked to the real Dottie's daughter. And her, she said that her mother would never drop the ball for anybody, like sister, yeah. whatever. And Gina Davis says that she knows, but she's never going to tell anybody. So I think she dropped it on purpose. Yeah. I feel like is, this is a roller coaster story. Yeah. Where if you guys don't know the roller coaster song story. Oh, yeah. The roller coaster. <laughs> and you hear a woman scream. And there was this infamous story that when they were recording that single, there was a woman that was murdered outside the studio and that's her yelling. And the band, who was the band? It was the Ohio players. So for the longest time, Ohio players went with no, that yeah. game because they wanted to sell more records. And so to me, Gina Davis is pulling that. She's of like, like, ooh, the mystery yeah. is more interesting than it, if I really tell you, but I agree with you that she did it on purpose yeah. because that scene with Tom Hanks and Gina Davis, where they're looking onto them celebrating you and could tell that. Like, Jimmy Dugan's pissed, but he's like, I get, I get it. it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. And, and there's the sense of, yeah, we should have won the World Series. And they knew that they should have won it. Yeah. That they could have won it, but they gave it away for- Man, if I was on our team, I'd be the greater so good. pissed. If I was Betty Spaghetti, I'd be like, my husband is dead and I lost the World Series. I gave up all this. Because of you, Dottie. Because you wanted to give it up to Shitty. your to your younger sister. <laughs> Did you know that A League of Their Own is the highest grossing baseball movie of all time? Really? Yeah. Did not know that. And the tagline was, this summer, Tom Hanks and the Rockford Peaches prove that a woman's place is at home first, second, and third. (laughs) Wow. I read that and I was like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So it made more money than Field of Dreams? I guess. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Adding to that, when Aaliyah the Round came out the opening weekend, it was second only guess to what other movie? Oh God, 92? It's a comic book movie. Batman Returns. Yep. Batman Returns was first and Aaliyah the Round was second. It's a good weekend. That's a really good weekend. Yeah. Um, the film has an approval rating of 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
Like I said earlier, there's no crying in baseball was ranked 54th on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes. In December of 2012, the National Film Registry chose a League of Their Own to be preserved. Now, if you don't know what the National Registry is, is every year 25 films are preserved by basically the government here in America. They chose they choose them based on cultural impact and the importance of what they did throughout the world. And so you have movies like Back to the Future, Star Wars, my favorite, Koyani Skatsi, um, just really important films that they deem to be preserved. And so League of Their Own is, is part of that club. On April 10th, 1993, A League of Their Own premiered a sitcom based on the movie. Did you know that? I did. Did you watch the YouTube clips? I didn't see the clips, but I did know about the sitcom. Yeah, because there's a few YouTube clips and they're kind of cringy. I heard it was canceled after like three episodes. Yeah, it premiered on CBS. And it's funny because I thought I would remember this, but I didn't. Series was created by the writers of the film, Lowell Gantz, and my favorite name, Babalu Mandel, who wrote the original script of, of the movie. The pilot was directed by Penny Marshall, so it has the look and feel of, of the movie and even had Tom Hanks direct the third episode. Oh, wow. Only Megan Kavanaugh, Marla Hooch, and Tracy Reiner, Betty Horn reprise their roles. Everything else was recast. And like you were saying, the series only lasted five episodes and then it was canceled. That being said, there's going to be a new series from Amazon Studios which I'm assuming will just be on Amazon Prime. And it is with Abby Jacobson, who's from Broad City. She's writing it. And then also the writer from uh, Mozart in the Jungle, Will Graham. He's also writing. I think they're both producing it as well. So far, the cast, it's been Nick Offerman, who's pretty much doing like the Tom Hanks, Jimmy Dugan role. He's an ex-Cubs pitcher who's tasked with managing this group of girls and I mean I'm excited to see it in a new lens I feel like it's going to be like a glow but baseball <laughs> yeah like right? that's, that's what I think yeah too. I want to talk a bit about the legacy of the peaches as well as like the women's league and a little bit about I know we didn't mention it but there's also uh, a scene in the movie where it's not like the montage scenes and I think it's the first montage it's like scene. the first one where I think a player hits like a foul ball or something like that and it goes off to the side and there's a group of uh, black women watching the game and the infielder's like, oh, hey, like throw it right here and like has her glove. And so one of the women grabs the ball and just like lobs it over right into her glove. Doesn't lob it, throws like a rocket. throws it and then she takes her glove off and just goes like, fuck, like that was hard. And that's kind of, I really like that scene. And when I was reading up on the movie, they actually kind of fought to keep that scene in just because that was an important part to show that, you know, all of these players were white and they weren't accepting colored players at the time. And in speaking of colored players, you know, you think about Jackie Robinson and the Negro Leagues and there were actually women in the Negro Leagues. There were three important women in the Negro Leagues. And unfortunately, the way they got into the Negro Leagues was because they were kind of taking cues from the 
um, from the girls league in the past because the Negro leagues were kind of dwindling because Jackie Robinson had left to join the MLB as well as Larry Dobby, Satchel Page, and Hank Thompson. They had all kind of gone the Jackie Robinson route and gone to Major League Baseball. And because their like star players had left, people had kind of stopped paying attention to the Negro Leagues. So they were kind of like, well, let's take a tip from the All-American Girls you know, Baseball League and let's get some women in here. And so notable players that had joined the Negro Leagues were... Mamie Peanut Johnson, Tony Stone, who was a second base woman, and Connie Morgan. And so these were women that were in the Negro Leagues. And, you know, they they unfortunately struggled a lot, a lot because not only were they women, but they were black. And they kind of had to fight against what the papers were printing about them. And they had to remain feminine at the same time while playing baseball. And their teammates, who were men, were treating them probably pretty terribly because they thought they were just like a publicity ploy. But I think it's really important to mention them and know that there was that disparity with like the girls league that they were only taking white women, basically. You know, and going with the Rockford legacy, they've been trying to build a museum at, uh, what was it called? Uh, Bayer Stadium in Rockford, Illinois. And they've been trying to do that since I think the 75th anniversary of, the Peaches and the baseball, um, the girls league, which they had in, I think it was like 2018 was the 75th anniversary and they had like a bunch of festivities out there. And so they've been trying to do this museum and they've been struggling with like funding and more lately, I think in like August, they had like a town hall thing where they postponed it now because people are saying that if they build a museum on the property of the stadium, that it's going to overshadow all of the other sports that have been played at the stadium. So I guess they've had like football and like track and stuff like that. But I'm like, who cares? <laughs> like, yeah. It's like those <laughs> sports are big enough. How are you going to overshadow that? And it's like yeah. a women's league. So yeah, like it doesn't make any sense. So that's basically kind of where they're at. But other than that, you know, there are tons of YouTube videos you can look up about, you know, actual players. I saw one today of them actually singing the victory song at one of their anniversary shindigs that they had. So there's lots out there to to look at as far as like the real players of the girls league. As we wrap up this deep dive on a league of their own, what what are your lasting memories and what do you take um, from this film? I think I'm just always going to put a league of their own into my probably like top 10, not only like baseball movies, just <laughs> regular movies. Just because it's, you know, directed by a woman and it's about women in baseball, which Baseball is my favorite sport. I love baseball. And it's just kind of, I love a movie kind of of the time. And because this takes place in like the 40s, I really love that era and kind of seeing the old baseball stadiums and kind of just the character development throughout the movie is really good. The relationship that the girls have with each other. So I think it's it's just always going to be relevant and it's always going to be of the time, no matter what time you're watching it. I think over time, this film has become, and I think even originally it was like a very charming and beloved film. Um, you know, it, to, it was made in the 90s, but when you watch it now, I think you could easily, you know, confuse it with it being made in any other, you know, decade. Um, and like you were saying, like, it's it's a sign of the times. 
but also, you know, the way that it was cast and the way that it was shot. Um, I think it lends itself to it being kind of timeless and you really don't know when it was made. Like yeah. you don't even really care about yeah. that. Um, and to me, the message is, like I said, it's very, it's a very sibling rivalry. You know, it's about obviously the struggles of women in that time and trying to break through into a male dominated, you know, era. Yeah. I mean, it continues to be that. I think as far as like a sports movie, I feel like how you were saying, like it's up there with like, with the greats of, of, of any sports movie, mm. because I think it's, it's so well done. And, um, and it's so realistic, you know, there's no CGI, there's right, no, right. um, Hey, let's fake this. Let's fake that. There's hardly and any doubles. Like there's hard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so if it was made today, it would be made completely different. I think, mm -hmm. I think they would cast it as like, let's get really good actors and then double, yeah, you know, yeah. hide the fact that they can't play baseball. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, it was a breakthrough, you know, like you're saying Penny Marshall, broke a lot of ground with her directing as a woman and, and sort of set the trend for, you know, other women directors at the time. And, you know, it was so successful. That's the other thing mm -hmm. too, is like, it was a breakthrough, not just creatively, but successful. And to say like, Hey, look, here's a, a movie that was directed by a woman that broke a hundred million dollars, which I'm sure a lot of executives that were men were like, no, we're just not going to hire women directors because it's box office poison, you know? So I, I feel like it's a, it's a testament to that. And, and just, it's just a good movie. Like yeah, it's, it's a, great a great movie. movie. Yeah. And you can rewatch it a hundred times and find new things. And it's a feel good movie. And, and it's all the elements came together to really make it, you know, um, uh, pass the test of time. Ending our podcast as we usually do, we're ending it with a double feature. So, Back in the day, if you were going to drive in a movie or just a movie theater, you know, you would pair two movies for the price of one. And so they either had actors in common or maybe a same theme or maybe they were trying to be eclectic and just combine two movies that had nothing to do with each other. And so we try to combine movies that are that, you know. And so, Angie, what is your double feature? If you were to watch A League of Their Own with another movie, what would you pair it with? I picked a movie that I've actually seen maybe like three times throughout the last year, I think. And I had always wanted to watch it, but like when it came out of the theater, I wanted to watch it and I never did. And then I finally was like, oh, I'm going to watch this movie. And I loved it. And it, it, it matches thematic elements as far as female empowerment and that sense of competition and not necessarily like a male dominated sport, but like a sport that you wouldn't necessarily think of women being in. So I picked Whip It. Oh, okay. So the roller nice. derby movie yeah. with Elliot Page and Kristen Wiig. Directed and by Drew Barrymore. Directed by Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore is also in it. And I saw it last year when everyone was in the roller skating phase. And it's it's a good movie. Like it's really, really good. And it's really fun. And it kind of hits the same thematic elements that League of Their Own does as far as, you know, being in a sport that you wouldn't necessarily think of women being in and Juliette Lewis is in it as well. It's just a really good movie. And I think that would be a really good double bill. That's a really great pick that actually never crossed my mind. So <laughs> my pick, because I had talked about how to me, 
it's about sibling rivalry. And so I was trying to think like other great sibling rivalry movies, not having to do with baseball. Cause originally I thought I'll pick another baseball movie. Yeah. That's too easy, you know? And so my movie is adaptation. I've never seen adaptation. If you haven't seen adaptation directed by Spike Jones, starring Nicolas Cage. And to me, why I chose adaptation is because in the film it's about twins that okay. are both brothers. Yeah. One of the twins wants to be a screenwriter really, really badly. And then you have another twin played by Nicholas Cage as well, yeah. <laughs> who's kind of like half-assing it and also trying to be a screenwriter. But he would be like, he, the half-ass screenwriter would be like, I want to make the next Independence Day where the other hardcore screenwriter is trying to make the next, you know, Citizen Kane. And so you have two siblings that are trying to go for the same goal, but they're completely different. And so to me, it reminded me of Kit and Dottie where like they're trying to go both for baseball and they're completely different. And yeah. one of them is better than the other, clearly, um, but they're still trying to go for it. And so to me, even though adaptation seems weird to pair right. with a leave their own, but I feel like it has a lot of similarities when it comes to that sibling rivalry and just sort of this back and forth. That about wraps up our deep dive on A League of Their Own. We really hope that you enjoyed it. Again, teasing for October. We're going to do a lot of cool stuff where we're going to be reviewing movies that are about to be released as well as commentary on some horror movies. And again, doing a deep dive on this month's uh, usual podcast that we usually do. We really thank you guys for listening. Again, you can find a video podcast of every episode on YouTube. Just search Cup Movie Pod and on social media. You can find us on Instagram at CutMoviePod. Same thing on Twitter where we tease what we're about to do and any updates. You can find all that stuff there. Again, we really appreciate everyone for listening and we'll see you guys on the next one. Cut. That's a wrap. Cut.